The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You suddenly had, when Erdogan came to power, a much stronger and more economically vibrant Turkey that could imagine bigger horizons that could imagine instead of having to hold on to what it had, you could imagine really reshaping the region in its image. And I think part of the problem is that that temptation got away from Erdogan, that with the grandiose historical rhetoric, with the disdain for the West, with the conviction that the West was in decline, we were entering a more multipolar world, the Arab Spring, some of the upheaval that was taking place in the Middle East, all came together to enable Erdogan to refashion his history, refashion this long-standing desire for national greatness in a way that suddenly came up against NATO, came up against the West, and put Turkey in conflict with the very actors that, I would argue, helped bring it to the place that it is today. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for April 30th, 2021. When President Biden entered office, he inherited a bilateral relationship with Turkey that was strained to the limits by the growing independence streak in that country's foreign policy, and one that had been pushed in unfamiliar directions by his predecessor's direct and often unpredictable personal relationship with Turkey's longstanding president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. This past week, the Biden administration took its first major move on the U.S.-Turkey relationship by recognizing the atrocities committed against Armenians by Ottoman authorities in the early 20th century as a genocide a move that prior presidents had avoided for fear of how Turkey might react. To discuss what these developments may mean for this key bilateral relationship, I sat down with Nicholas Danforth of the Hellenic Foundation for European and Foreign Policy and Asla Aydin Tashbash of the European Council on Foreign Relations. We discussed how Turkey views its place in the world, what this means for its alliance with the United States, and how the Biden administration is likely to respond moving forward. It's the Lawfare Podcast for April 30th, the state of the U.S.-Turkey relationship. So last week, the White House released a readout of an event that a lot of Turkey watchers have been waiting for with some anticipation, and that was the first phone call between President Biden and Mr. Erdogan of Turkey. Um, This is something that happened three months after Biden entered office. A lot of folks were saying this is something of a cold shoulder, kind of setting or resetting a little bit of a tone for the relationship with the United States and Turkey. And of course, Biden, while it wasn't included in either of the official readouts, media reports indicate that President Biden used the opportunity to tell Erdogan that he, in fact, was taking a pretty dramatic step uh, that prior presidents have evaded with direct bearing on the U.S.-Turkey relationship, and that is the decision to recognize the killing of Armenians in the early 20th century as a genocide. Uh, again, a step that prior presidents had had hesitated to take, even as 
commemorating and recognizing the atrocities that occurred during that period uh, had become a kind of annual event that American presidents were involved in. Before we get to these most recent steps, I want to take a little bit of a step back and give us a sense of where this new tack, perhaps, that Biden is pursuing is coming from. Because, of course, we saw that Biden's predecessor, President Trump, had a very interesting and idiosyncratic in some ways relationship uh, with Erdogan involving a very direct communication often that led to big swings in U.S. policy in Syria and elsewhere. Nick, let me turn to you first. Give us a sense of what the state of the U.S.-Turkey relationship was that Biden inherited, where he's coming from, and what he kind of encountered on January 20th when he assumed office. Thanks, Scott. Biden, as you suggested, inherited a both deeply dysfunctional but also confused relationship with Turkey. U.S.-Turkish relations have been degenerating for decades now. Coverage in the United States focuses on the personality of President Erdogan. He's certainly a big part of it both his rhetoric and his worldview, but there are also structural issues. Um, The end of the Cold War meant that the United States and Turkey didn't have a common strategic enemy to bring them together. And in that context, more and more differences have festered. The United States is upset about Turkey's purchase of Russian air defense missiles. Turkey is upset that Fethullah Gulen, the cleric involved in Turkey's 2016 coup attempt, lives in the United States. Uh, There are also profound differences over Syria, Both the United States and Turkey are sponsoring organizations there that the other sees as a terrorist group. In this context, things got even more confused when Trump came into office because none of these problems went away. But somehow Trump personally was very eager to get along with Erdogan and was very eager to convince Erdogan that basically he could make all Turkey's problems go away. And if it weren't for other people in the administration, other people in Washington, you know, Trump and Erdogan could have a beautiful relationship. And so Biden, I think, has been very eager to reset this and show that, yes, the United States and Turkey still have a lot of common interests. They still need to continue to cooperate. But this has to be on America's terms. Biden, particularly by not calling Erdogan, has tried to say, I'm not going to be Trump. I'm not going to pick up the phone whenever you call. I'm not going to handle Syria the way you tell me to. I'm going to work with Turkey as it serves American interests, not as as it serves Turkey's interests. And I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but the Armenian genocide statement was just the latest example of how this is playing out. So that's a great kind of synopsis of the American side, of the American political side of this relationship. But Asa, let me turn to you. Tell us a little bit about where Erdogan is domestically in Turkey right now. Obviously, he has been in power for a long time, but is also facing an array of challenges right now, ranging from the COVID pandemic to own domestic political challenges and you know questions about his party and new challenges on the various fronts there, both locally and nationally. And also, you know, we're seeing his government kind of take a turn in regards to its foreign policy. So So tell us a little bit about where Erdogan is and where the U.S.-Turkey relationship fits into Turkey's domestic picture for him. So Erdogan has been in power for almost two decades, and he is experiencing uh, somewhat of a decline in his popularity, particularly over the past two years, and is able to hold on to power with a mixture of sort of control over state apparatus, but also, a, you know, increasingly 
authoritarian policies which make life more difficult for his domestic rivals. Having said that, he is still by far the most popular Turkish leader. And his appeal, his nativist appeal, is making Turkey great again. You know, his promise is that you know, the Turkey is no longer bound by the Western-led liberal order. It worked for a while. It doesn't anymore. We can achieve so much more, you know, sort of what I call Turkey's Zonderweg. Turkey's sort of a more independent, non-aligned policy in which he promises uh, his voters that Turkey is destined to be a global power in an age of great power competition on par with Russia, U.S., etc., the reality is, of course, Turkey is a regional heavyweight and has been expanding its military footprint outside of its borders, for sure, in Syria, Libya, Caucasus, and so on. But it's not a global power in the sense that, you know, in terms of uh, military capability is one thing, but in terms of economic power and and sort of ability to deliver to its citizens, it's one of the least powerful uh, members of the G20 League. Erdogan's domestic narrative is all about rebuilding the empire, closing the 100-year parenthesis that the secular republic was, and unleashing the sleeping giant. And I think increasingly we're seeing that he has reached the limits of that policy. Even the propaganda value is wearing off. You have a situation in which Turkey is barely able to attain enough vaccines for its citizens. So far, only 10% have been vaccinated. Uh, You have a situation in which the president, a mighty Turkish president, has been waiting on the phone for for the last two months, waiting for a call from the U.S. president. You also have, in addition to growing electoral vulnerabilities, you have a very serious uh, economic vulnerability, which, of course, is also inching away his support base. So it's more of a juggling act for Erdogan than people understand. When they look at Turkey from outside, he looks almighty. But domestically, yes, he's very powerful. And no doubt he is the most popular leader, but he has to constantly push and pull and negotiate and build alliances and build new alliances in order to and do a fair bit of uh, authoritarian uh, brinkmanship in order to retain power at home. So we're only 100 days into the Biden administration. Obviously, they have a whole world of international issues to address. And as one might expect, we haven't seen necessarily a ton of action happening on a lot of important bilateral relationships and Turkey among them. And part of that's about the pandemic. Part of that's just about the policy review that every new administration undertakes when they're evaluating what they need to change and what they should keep from the prior administration. Um, But we've gotten a couple of tea leaves here both in terms of the 90-day delay in the first talk between Biden and Erdogan, in terms of this recognition of the Armenian genocide. What can we tell so far about the direction that the Biden administration seems to want to steer the ship of the U.S.-Turkey relationship? Nick, you described it as a bit of a reset, but is it a reset and a, and a humbling, perhaps, as Asla might have suggested, a deliberate effort to show the limited degree of influence that Turkey is able to influence, particularly in comparison to uh, the relationship between Erdogan and Trump, where Trump was very eager to provide a variety of bennies 
to Erdogan? Or is there something a little more sophisticated? Or is it just in a holding pattern while the Biden administration gets its sea legs? So I think Asla did an excellent job of explaining why, especially when you look at this from Ankara's perspective, this is about more than just some bilateral disputes between the U.S. and Turkey. Part of the tension comes from Turkey really having a new strategic vision, really having a new goal about its role in the world, and really emphasizing that you know after a long time in which it was defined as a loyal NATO member, it wants to have a more independent foreign policy, and it thinks it can balance the United States and Russia to uh, enhance its interests and to push back against what it sees as an often hostile attitude from Washington. And the problem with Trump's policies was that it played into both Turkey's perception that Washington was hostile, but also Turkey's perception that Washington needed Turkey too much to ever push back against it. And so, you know, you had a lot of harsh rhetoric, especially coming from the United States Congress during the last four years. You know, you had the repeated threat of sanctions over something like the purchase of Russian missiles, but you also had Trump repeatedly intervene to look out for Turkish interests by, say, delaying those sanctions. And so this did, you know, I think this is the challenge that Biden is going to continue to face, confirm Turkey's already extant belief that, again, Washington didn't like it, but Turkey was too important for Washington to be able to do anything about it. And I do think the way Biden has tried to reset this is actually very good for for pushing back against this view. Uh, I don't think anyone in the administration wanted to say that it's trying to humble Turkey, but there is some truth to that. It's, you know, through Biden's inaction, through resisting calls that previous presidents have fallen victim to, to censor the use of the word genocide by simply waiting to call Turkey, by putting out repeated statements criticizing Turkey's human rights abuses, Biden is saying, look, we don't need this relationship as much as you think we do. If we're going to cooperate with you, you know, if we're going to have a, you know, a new, more harmonious relationship, we want to go, go back in time to when we had a healthier relationship, that's going to require real concessions on Turkey's part. Well, Asla, let me come to you with this question that I think has dominated the news for the last week in terms of the U.S.-Turkey relationship, which is this recognition of the genocide uh, relating to Armenians in the early 20th century. Of course, this was an action that predated the modern Turkish state, um, but nonetheless has weighed or at least been portrayed or perceived as weighing really heavily on the bilateral relationship. At the same time, though, the United States isn't necessarily the first foreign government to take this step. So perhaps the dam has broken already on on this particular issue. But it does also fit into a broader narrative that Nick has just kind of referenced or contextualized, which is this question about Erdogan's own human rights record, particularly his treatment of political opposition in Turkey, uh, as well as Turkey's Kurdish population and other human rights questions that have pervaded around uh, his government really for, for many years now. How meaningful was this sort of recognition for the bilateral relationship? And does it seem to say anything about how that relationship is going to perceive and act on this broader human rights questions that are necessarily related to it? It is actually very telling that Biden has used the term genocide. I used to be a correspondent in Washington, and every year you had 
Turkish lobby and the Pentagon and defense industry and various other groups lobbying the White House to prevent a genocide recognition on April 24th. And uh, basically, most U.S. presidents would willingly oblige. Uh, Obama had used the term metziegern, which in Armenian means the great calamity. And uh, other presidents often sort of pledging to recognize genocide before their election would end up not using that term. The fact that Joe Biden has used the word genocide, the G word, uh, so to speak, in, in the, in the Turkish American relations last week tells us several things. One is that Turkey is no longer the ultimate geopolitical prize in the age of great power competition. For the longest time, you had Pentagon or others in Congress lobbying the White House. Turkey is so important. We have bases. It's important for the Middle East. It's important for that. So don't even think of using that term and upsetting Turkey. For some reason, it is no longer that important to upset Turkish public or Turkey. And I think there is a desire to reset the power dynamic. I think under Trump, just as Nick described, it was as if Turkey is the mighty global power and U.S. is the demandeur in relations. You know, Trump was so willing to oblige Erdogan on every issue from his purchase of S-400s to human rights situation, etc. And I think the Biden administration wants to reset this power dynamic in a way that where which makes Turkey the lesser power in this relationship. And you have Turkey's talk of strategic autonomy, independent foreign policy, we can play in the sort of great power competition, we're a global power, etc. But then when Biden used that term, what President Erdogan did in the end was basically downplay it. It felt too uh, risky at this time and fragile moment in uh, in the relationship to do anything that would further derail the Turkish-American alliance. This is not what people expected. For the longest time, you had Turkey, people speaking on behalf of Turkey or Turkish officials threatening to shut down U.S. bases, you know, to, incursion into Syria, you name it. Uh, but for some reason, it turns out these things were not in the cards. Well, let's dig a little deeper into this idea that you you've you've brought to the fore here that seems to be a major driver in the dynamics of the bilateral relationship and that is this new robust kind of vision of Turkey's role in the world and of Turkish foreign policy that Erdogan has embraced really over the last decade uh, I would say as as a casual Turkey watcher although I welcome correction or calibration on that but that has kind of particularly come to the fore in the last few years when you look at uh, Libya, Syria, a number of other areas where, where Turkish foreign policy interests seem very much in tension with the United States. Asla, can you give us a little bit more about what the actual vision is for Turkey's role in the world and how it's manifesting in a variety of spheres that might cause this tension between the United States and Turkey? The vision is described as strategic autonomy. This notion that Turkey's interests are best served when it is non-aligned and can play hardball with global powers, uh, play, and I think Erdogan's skill has been playing off Russia and particularly under Trump administration, playing off Russia and US, US and Europe even against one another. 
And uh, the idea is that Turkey is destined to be a great power, a global power, rebuild the Ottoman Empire, etc., in this new age, that the West is in decline and the vacuum in the region will be filled up by players like Turkey. There are several problems with this vision. The most obvious one being issues to do with Turkey's capacity. It is a regional heavyweight, no doubt. But when it comes to being a global power and having the economic might to to go along with that, I think Turkey is clearly feeling extremely vulnerable now. But this is a case where you are misled by your own propaganda. When you turn on television in Turkey, there is sitcoms about the rise of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, There is almost a worship of the Ottoman Empire now over the last few years from the various battles they have won in the last stretch of the empire to figures and sultans, etc. This is very different from the sentiments during the Republican period. During the past hundred years, people were told in the school system that the Ottoman Empire was backward, was unable to meet the demands of what Ataturk, the founder of the Republic, called the contemporary civilization. And the modernizing project of the Republic, of the secular Republic, essentially tended to uh, de-emphasize the successes of the Ottoman Empire, particularly its final stretch, and talk about the Republic as this more forward-looking vision. What you have now from Erdogan and his uh, friends is a a totally different take, which sees the secular Republic as a hundred-year parenthesis that did not really allow Turkey to fully flesh out its potential. And now that parenthesis is being closed and the empire is coming back. This vision of a new empowered Turkey in filling the the gaps left by a Western decline is particularly in tension, it seems to me at least, with what has been one of the main defining characteristics of the U.S.-Turkey relationship really for at least the last half of the 20th century and into the 21st century, and that is the fact that Turkey is a member of NATO. And not just a member of NATO, but a strategically really important member of NATO. Nick, what has this, the emergence of this new vision of Turkey's role in the world meant for its role in NATO and its relationship with other NATO members? And what does that mean for the kind of the future of Turkey's role in NATO? I think it's important to emphasize that, you know, a lot of nations want to be great. A lot of nations want to be more powerful. It's a fairly widespread phenomenon, certainly one we're familiar with in the United States. Erdogan, as Oslo said, has been very good at wrapping this desire for greatness in a historic Ottoman mantle. Put Ottoman garb on it, put a fake mustache on it, put an Ottoman hat on it. Whatever policies Erdogan endorses now, he can sell in Ottoman terms. When Erdogan was trying to improve his uh, relationship with Syria under Bashar al-Assad, that was described as a neo-Ottoman foreign policy. Uh, now that uh, you know Erdogan is trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, that was again described as an example of Erdogan's neo-Ottomanism. You know, the historical rhetoric, this shift is is important, but we shouldn't let us distract it from you know what's sometimes going on underneath. I can't resist saying, I mean, part of my I come at this as a historian. Some of my research is on U.S.-Turkish relations in the 1950s. During the 1950s, Turkish politicians would sometimes describe Turkey's NATO membership 
as Neo-Ottoman, would say that, you know, the famous Turkish sultans prefigured uh, the NATO doctrine of human rights. Uh, When Turkish soldiers were fighting in Korea, they were following in the footsteps of the Ottoman sultans. Uh, There's a legend, in fact, about an Ottoman soldier, actually the spirit of an Ottoman soldier coming to comfort Turkish soldiers fighting alongside their American compatriots against the communists in Korea in 1950. So, you know, the desire for greatness has been consistent throughout, you know, Turkish, like a lot of countries' histories. Uh, the difference that we're seeing now is that, you know, the nationalism and the national pride, instead of being expressed through Turkey's membership in NATO, are expressed through Turkey's opposition to NATO. You know, Turkey emerged from World War I following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, a much weaker country, a much more vulnerable country, a country that had its territory threatened and occupied by hostile European powers. And in that era lasted for much of the last century, the goal for Turkish policymakers was to keep what they'd held on to, to make sure that they didn't lose any more territory. After a century, you know, in a century of success, in a century of economic development, of political development, Uh, of improved global standing because of Turkey's membership in NATO, uh, of an improved, dramatically improved economy because of a lot of the reforms that Ataturk put in place, a dramatically improved economy because of the strength of the educational system that the Republic put in place. You suddenly had, when Erdogan came to power, a much stronger and more economically vibrant Turkey that could imagine bigger horizons, that could imagine instead of having to hold on to what it had, You can imagine really reshaping the region in its image. And I think part of the problem is that that temptation got away from Erdogan, that with the grandiose historical rhetoric, with the disdain for the West, with the conviction that Asla mentioned that the West was in decline, we were entering a more multipolar world. All of that, the Arab Spring, some of the upheaval that was taking place in the Middle East, all came together to enable Erdogan to refashion his history, refashion this long-standing desire for national greatness in a way that suddenly came up against came up against NATO, came up against the West, and put Turkey in conflict with the very actors that I would argue helped bring it to the place that it is today. Well, if there is one kind of recent action that has put Turkey in the clearest point of tension with NATO members, it is its decision to purchase weapon systems from Russia in direct violation of uh, U.S. sanctions that have since been imposed on Turkey, although at a level kind of calibrated, it's seen by the Trump administration to, to limit its impact on Turkey's economy. And maybe it's seen as a little bit more ameliorative, even than Congress would have liked at the time. What is Turkey's approach to its relationship with Russia? While they have this level of coordination over arms sales and purchases, we also see them at a degree of loggerheads in Syria and in other sort of domains. Is it a similar balancing act in regards to the United, that it's pursuing with the United States? Is it doing something similar in regard to Russia? Or are there other dynamics in play here? Asa, let me, let me direct this to you. Well, it's a far less comfortable of a balancing act than you have with the West because there is a huge price to messing with Russia and there really isn't to uh, having a divergent position from your NATO partners. Turkey's relationship with Russia rests on this chemistry between Erdogan and Putin. 
But clearly, the two have been getting very close since the failed coup attempt of 2016, which the Turkish government blames on the West. And uh, Putin has used this beautifully, diplomatically and politically, to his advantage, peeling Turkey away from NATO, selling anti-missile weapon systems, getting involved with various big infrastructure projects. But that has that is starting to wear off now. In different theaters, that is to say South Caucasus, Syria and Libya, Turks are starting to feel that it's not very comfortable to have this what is called competitive cooperation with Russia. That it is getting tougher and tougher. That Russians are very difficult to manage and that Russia is essentially still a threat to Turkey. But there is a discrepancy between how bureaucracy and policymakers feel about it and you know the, the sort of various projects that are going ahead. Turkey is starting to realize that it has to do some course correction in relations with the West and definitely do a balancing act. But meanwhile, there is the outstanding issues with, you know, such as the purchase of S-400s. The, the system has arrived in Turkey and has triggered U.S. sanctions. And there's other issues. For example, the very difficult balancing act in the Caucasus. And uh, on top, you have, I think, pressures that are coming on an economical level. Turkish economy is so well integrated into the Western and in particular European economy that these tensions that come from Turkey's opaque relationship with Russia are triggering a sort of a, a various reactions in the financial sector that end up hurting Turkish economy. So you have a situation in which balancing act is there, but it is getting increasingly more difficult to play. The decision for S-400s, for the purchase of S-400s, which triggered U.S. sanctions, was one of the biggest, I think, strategic mistakes. And I'll tell you why. Not because, you know, people cannot purchase weapons that are not from countries that are not NATO members. But this is a very sophisticated system. It's a very good system, and it makes sense for China or Myanmar to purchase it because their military is integrated with, it can be integrated with this system. But for a NATO military, for a NATO defense architecture, it makes no sense to buy a system that, a software, so to speak, that speaks a different language. So you are trying to, you are buying a very sophisticated system, which you cannot fully integrate with your air defense mechanisms, with your fighter planes, with your radars, etc. But then you're nonetheless being blamed for buying that system. So this is a decision that was made by President Erdogan. And it is something he's finding a hard time walking back on. Well, the another area where we see Turkey both involved with Russia and involved with the Assad, neighboring Assad regime, and that plays into its domestic politics uh, in regards to the relations between its own Kurdish population and sometimes violent relationship with that and with Kurdish population nearby Syria is Syria. Of course, a theater where the United States has played a prominent military role for the last several years as well, acting in support of the Syrian Democratic Forces, which whose backbone really is Kurdish groups that, at least according to Turkey, 
are closely related, if not the same, as violent Turkish insurrection groups that, that operate in Turkey and are viewed as terrorist groups by both Turkey and the United States, coincidentally, under U.S. policy. Nick, tell us a little bit about how Turkey's role has evolved in Syria to the point now where it's it's really occupying a slice of Syria taken predominantly from those Syrian democratic forces and how that's factoring into this U.S.-Turkey relationship as well. Is this a point of leverage it has over the United States and over the Biden administration, or is it another situation where Turkey might be finding itself a little over its head? So the Syria situation is immensely complicated. I'll try to do justice to it quickly. In short, when the civil war in Syria started, the United States and Turkey both found themselves on the same side, eager to topple the Assad government. Uh, It quickly became clear that that was going to be more difficult than people anticipated, and that the people capable of doing that were going to be very radical Islamist actors. The United States, for a number of reasons, pulled back at that point. Turkey was committed to overthrowing the regime, continued backing those radical actors, many of whom evolved into ISIS thereby deeply alarming the United States. Part of the reason Turkey was so eager to back these Islamist actors is that they were a counterweight to the Kurdish forces in Syria, which, as you said, were closely aligned with a group that's been fighting an insurrection against the Turkish state for decades. Turkey was supporting these Islamist actors against Kurdish groups. The United States, conversely, saw the best way to push back against ISIS as backing the YPG, the Kurdish forces in Syria. And so suddenly you had, from being on the same side, the United States and Turkey on opposite sides. This is where the situation with Russia, which I'm really glad you asked Asla about because it's also a mess and I'm glad she was able to summarize it so nicely. This is where the situation with Russia got even more complicated. In many of the conflicts with Russia, which I think Asla nicely described as competitive cooperation, There was a sense that while Turkey and Russia might be backing opposite sides, they had an even deeper interest in getting the United States out of this conflict. So when the United States was backing Kurdish forces, Turkey decided that by working with Russia, it could get Russian support to intervene militarily in Syria. Uh, It needed Russian permission to use Syrian airspace. It got it. This enabled it to fight the U.S.-backed Kurdish groups there. Uh, But this also made Turkey dependent on Russia. And so in Idlib in northwestern Syria, where Turkish-backed Islamist forces were falling under a Russian and Syrian-backed assault, it repeatedly created a situation where the Turkish government was forced to back down, to give ground, and to allow Russia and Assad to keep making advances uh, in order to maintain the semblance of cooperation, which, as Asla said, Turkey was very uncomfortable with, Turkey realized came with long-term consequences, but... What those were seen as secondary to pushing back against the United States, getting the United States out of Syria, a goal that Turkey thought it had accomplished when Trump greenlighted a Turkish invasion in northeastern Syria, uh, fall 2019, but has proved more difficult and has put Turkey in a difficult situation now where, you know, instead of trying to successfully balance the United States and Russia, it sometimes seems to be falling victim to simultaneous pressure from both the United States and Russia at the same time. And that's the situation it finds itself in now. It's still at odds with the United States and northeastern Syria, where it's up against Kurdish-backed groups and the Islamist groups it's backing in northwestern Syria are once again falling under uh, military pressure from Russia and the Syrian regime. And it remains to be seen how Ankara is going to balance these pressures. 
So we, obviously, the, we have a complicated situation involving Turkey and the United States and Syria and other parts of the Middle East as well. Uh, we've talked about Libya. There's there's other kind of corners. But for the last few weeks, really, a lot of U.S. foreign policy has focused on another theater where Turkey also plays a different role, and that's Afghanistan. Um, the Biden administration, of course, has, has now announced that it intends to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, effective September 11th, 2021. No conditions on that. That appears to be a hard end date uh, for the U.S. military presence there. And of course, that turns the focus to what has been uh, a substantial part of Turkish focused or Turkish sponsored, excuse me, kind of peace process between the Taliban and the United States and the Afghan government. Of course, the most recent meeting after the the declaration of withdrawal, which actually moved the date back from May 1st to September, was postponed. But Turkey, nonetheless, has played both a diplomatic role in regards to fostering these sorts of conversations and diplomatic dialogue between the United States and the Taliban, something that's presumably going to become more important as U.S. military presence declines and a lot of activities there shift to diplomatic channels. And then it also, of course, has troops on the ground. And I'm not sure they've actually reached a firm conclusion as to whether Turkish troops in Afghanistan will be departing or not with the rest of the NATO contingent. Uh, at one point, there was some some chatter about them potentially remaining beyond uh, the other NATO forces located there. Asta, can you tell us a little bit about how Turkey has fits into the Afghanistan picture and therefore might play a role moving forward as the Biden administration attempts to execute what it really is kind of the main foreign policy objective that's laid out for itself uh, in this first year in office, which is ending the U.S. conflict there. Afghanistan has no strategic value for Turkey. Zero. But it is extremely valuable in terms of providing an opportunity to fix the relationship with the U.S., It's obviously a peripheral issue. It's not one of the core components of the Turkish-U.S. relationship. But by sending troops to Afghan peacekeeping mission and after U.S. withdrawal or by hosting the peace talks in Istanbul, Ankara feels they can carry favor with the Biden administration at a time when relations are at their lowest. So it provides value, a roundabout value, which essentially is about perhaps providing an opportunity to highlight Turkey's importance to Biden people who no longer seem to think Ankara is the most important geopolitical partner. Yeah, I just follow up by saying, I mean, part of what makes the Afghanistan peace talks in Turkey important is that it shows that there are still people in the State Department who are eager to try to develop a positive relationship with Turkey Uh, and see things like this as a chance for the United States and Turkey to work together. The risk is if it doesn't work out, if you know Turkey tries to leverage its roles in the Afghanistan talks for concessions on other issues from the United States, or simply if these being Afghan peace talks, they don't work out. The risk is that this is you know, the one area in which we are trying to have a positive agenda. If that falls through, it's going to further sour the very possibility of having a positive agenda. So there are these peripheral issues like Afghanistan, like Cyprus peace talks that have started this week, or even prospects of normalization with Armenia. These uh, issues are peripheral in the sense that they're not about the direct Turkish-American relationship. They're not in the long list of problems between Turkey and the U.S., but they have the ability to positively impact that difficult relationship. Well, that that's actually is a good pivot to 
what I think will be my closing question for, for each of you, which is that as we are watching the next several months and frankly, several years of the evolution of the U.S.-Turkey relationship under the Biden administration, what are the big items that observers should be looking at and looking for, whether it's areas of potential conflict or tension or developments that might signal a positive or turn in the relationship or a particular type of turn in the relationship? What are the big things that are on your radar and you think should be on other folks' radar as they are trying to figure out where this relationship is headed? Nick, I'll start with you. I think for the foreseeable future, the relationship is going to be a infuriating hostile dance where you're going to see tempers flare over a number of issues. Coming up, we have a U.S. court case against a Turkish state bank that was involved in Iran sanctions that has the potential to come with heavy fines for Turkey. We still don't have a resolution of the situation in Syria. That could blow up. Turkey's threatening to buy more Russian missiles. That could create new sanctions. Any number of potential crises could come up. I'm pleased that we haven't had any so far during Biden's time in office, but inevitably they will occur. I think when they do, you'll see uh, flaring tensions. You'll see increased animosity. You'll then see both sides, hopefully, since neither side really wants to blow up the relationship, you'll see both sides step back. You'll see Turkey try to put a positive spin on things. It will say that it's looking to improve relations with Greece or with Egypt or with Armenia. You know, Turkey will keep proposing new shared agendas. People in Washington will be eager to reciprocate that talk. They'll be eager to say, oh, maybe we can find a way forward. Maybe we can put our differences behind us. But as long as Turkey com- remains committed to the strategic orientation that it seems to have adopted over the last uh, several years, as long as you don't see any dramatic changes in the perspective of Europe or the United States on their role in the world, I think the dynamics of play are going to guarantee that however however many attempts at restoring ties or improving ties or lessening tensions you see, the fundamentals are set against this relationship. Things will continue to get worse. And as long as they can get worse steadily, as long as they can get worse without some kind of major crisis, some kind of catastrophic blow up, I think at this point, I for one will take that as a win. Asla, how about you? What are you looking at in regards to the course of the U.S.-Turkey relationship over the next few months and years? Well, definitely the Halkbank case about a Turkish state bank that is brought on by New York prosecutors, that will be an important issue for the Turkish public over the next couple of months. The case is, I think, starting in May and is likely to result in a heavy fine for the Turkish State Bank. And you're going to probably have a response from the Turkish government that says this is an attempt to bring down the government in Turkey. This is an attempt to penalize Turkey, that they're not recognizing the court decision, etc. But at some point, Turkey would have to settle with the U.S. Treasury in terms of agreeing upon a reasonable fine that the bank could pay. Why? Because it cannot afford economically to pick a fight with the financial system. So that is in the immediate term. But I think what I will also be looking at would be the NATO summit in June and the EU summit in June. The type of transatlantic alliance we are likely to see between Europe and the United States on Turkey. There is a desire on both sides, in Washington and in Brussels, to align policies on Turkey. But it seems to me that 
US and uh, Europe are going in the opposite directions. Well, maybe opposite is too strong a word, but in certainly divergent paths in their dealings with Turkey. Whereas uh, Europeans seem to have given up on Turkey's domestic evolution and, you know, take it for granted that a resurgent Turkey is going to be an important player in their neighborhood. Therefore, they want to establish a stable, constructive relationship, a modus vivendi with Erdogan. Whereas the Biden administration continues to emphasize human rights, uh, sees that the story of Turkey is yet to be written particularly when it comes to domestic matters, and is unwilling to cut Erdogan's slack when it comes to these huge geopolitical problems. I think that misalignment between United States and Europe is very interesting to watch. It's not happening in front of cameras, but it is happening to an extent behind the scenes. And I think I would be very interested in seeing how the two global powers can talk about Turkey and coordinate on Turkey if they can. That reflects as well, I think, how much of this hinges on the course of Turkish democracy. Uh, As Asla said at the outset, Erdogan, he's not democratic, but he's been very good at winning elections with just enough legitimacy, with just a small enough amount of manipulation to maintain a veneer of democracy. And yet, as she said, his popularity continues to dwindle amongst COVID and economic crisis. And so the question is, when his ability to square that circle, maintain that veneer breaks down, what will happen? And the answer to that question will have a huge impact on relations with Europe and the US as well. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Nick Asla, thank you so much for joining me today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. This podcast was engineered by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.